Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of drug use and gun violence that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Working for John DuPont had its ups and downs. By January 26, 1996, Georgia Duskis thought she'd seen it all. Perhaps she was too used to her boss's eccentricities to be surprised when John told her the police were on their way to his house that day. But when he instructed her not to let the authorities in under any circumstances, she started to get worried. She was eventually able to use a cell phone to reach Patrick Goodale, a member of John's private security. He immediately told Duskus she needed to get out of the house, then hung up. She peeked out of the window and saw legions of heavily armed officers gathering outside. It looked like they were preparing for war. Duskus hesitated for a moment before checking back in on John. He wasn't acting any stranger than usual, but somehow that made it all the more unsettling. The first chance she saw, Duskus escorted her friend and coworker, Barbara Linton, out of the mansion. She watched from the doorway as three large men in SWAT gear suddenly materialized from the trees, surrounded Linton, and shuffled her away from the house. Duskus thought about the massive arsenal of weapons stashed in safes around the building. John's manner was practically an armory. She knew then that whatever was happening, it wouldn't end well. And she was caught right in the middle of it. I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Last week, we talked about John DuPont, a failed Olympic hopeful who used his colossal family fortune to become wrestling's biggest patron. By the early 1990s, John supported most of the elite wrestlers in the U.S., including the most famous of all, Dave Schultz. John was always known for being a little odd, but in 1995, his strange behavior took a dangerous turn. This week, we'll discuss the tragic outcome of John's undiagnosed mental health crisis and its fallout in the world of Olympic wrestling. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. 57-year-old John DuPont's lonely upbringing created a desperation to belong but an inability to connect to others. Most people were put off by his odd behavior, but made excuses for it to continue benefiting from his wealth. Some of the men he supported through his wrestling program, Team Foxcatcher, were as guilty of this as anyone. His inner circle, however, the Olympic wrestlers who actually lived on the farm with him, grew to care for John as a friend and not just as a patron. This included Dave Schultz, one of the most successful American wrestlers on the international stage. By 1995, 36-year-old Dave and his family had lived at Foxcatcher Farms for six years. Over that time, he had become John's truest and most loyal friend. But as John's behavior went from eccentric to outright delusional, the environment became increasingly dangerous. For years, John had been convinced that someone was secretly spying on him. Those around him had to talk him down when he discussed conspiracies of being surveilled by mechanical trees and robot deer. But over the course of 1995, his imagined enemies shifted from hostile countries or shadowy government agencies to his dear friend, Dave Schultz. John hired a security team to install razor wire in his walls, fearing Dave was hiding there to watch him. They dug large trenches around the main house on the estate, Lysiter Hall, to assure John there were no secret tunnels for Dave to escape through. Before I go into John DuPont's psychology, Please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. According to Dr. John Grohole, the types of delusions John suffered from are known as persecutory. This means that the individual is absolutely convinced someone else is plotting against them. In addition, John also exhibited grandiose delusions in which he had thoughts of inflated self-worth or identity. During the final months of 1995, John often wandered his property in loose-fitting red clothing. He made bizarre announcements and demanded to be referred to as a Dalai Lama. Grandiosity like this can be the result of psychoactive drugs such as cocaine, 
which John was known to abuse. But unlike most people with these conditions, John's fantasies were rooted in some truth. His unimaginable wealth actually did make him an important and sought-after person. This made it even harder for his friends and colleagues to convince him he needed help. No one could deny that John DuPont wasn't quite like the average person. The rules didn't always apply to him. On January 26, 1996, something drove John DuPont to break down. When security guard Patrick Goodale came in for work, John told him they needed to survey the damage from a recent snowstorm. He grabbed a camera and his revolver before heading to his car. Meanwhile, Dave Schultz and his wife Nancy were at home having a quiet lunch. She teased him for writing on his own forehead to remind himself to pick up his children from school that day. The stunt perfectly captured his goofy, fun-loving personality. Nancy knew how much Dave loved his family, though there were times when she couldn't help but wonder if they came second to wrestling. She had been so relieved when he'd promised the 1996 Olympics would be his last. Soon, they'd move out of Foxcatcher Farms and head back to California. Nancy couldn't wait to leave John DuPont behind for good. As the couple finished up their lunch, a car creaked to a halt in the driveway. Dave looked out the front window and told her it was John. Nancy watched as her husband stepped forward and listened to him call out a friendly greeting. The next thing she heard was a gunshot piercing the quiet afternoon. At first, Nancy thought she'd imagined the sound, but then a second shot rang out. She rushed to the front door as Dave screamed. John was still in his car, his arm extended from the window, holding the smoking gun. His security guard, Patrick Goodale, took off his seatbelt and rushed out of the car. Dave crawled slowly across the snow toward his wife. When John saw Nancy, he pointed the gun at her and shouted for her to go back inside. Then, he shot Dave once more in the back and sped away, leaving Goodale behind. Nancy ran for the phone and dialed 911. Dave lay in their yard, breathing harder than he ever had. The operator had too many questions. Nancy pleaded with them to get an ambulance there immediately. By the time the EMTs were on their way, Dave was dead. Nancy kissed his forehead gently and told him she loved him for the last time. As authorities trying to get a handle on the situation, John sped back to Lissiter Hall. He replaced the three empty casings with fresh bullets and put his revolver on a nearby shelf. Two employees were still in the mansion, Barbara Linton and Georgia Duskis. John told them the police would be coming soon and warned them not to let anyone inside. The Newtown Township Police Department, longtime friends and beneficiaries of John DuPont's, knew all too well how many high-powered weapons were on the estate. 
the man had a literal tank at his disposal. When SWAT arrived, they were advised against using force. Not only was John heavily armed, he was also a specially trained marksman. Negotiation, it was decided, would be their best bet for safety. With at least two innocents inside, the police first focused on finding out whether or not John had taken hostages. The mansion's phone line had been damaged some time before, so the only way to make contact was through a cell phone. John's administrative assistant, Georgia Duskus, had the phone, but she was a little preoccupied as an army of officers gathered outside. John ordered her to call Goodale first. She tried several times unsuccessfully, until eventually he answered. When she told him John wanted to see him, Goodale responded that she and Barbara Linton needed to get out of there. Then he hung up. Duskus called back immediately. She had no idea what was going on. This time, police negotiators answered. By working with them, Duskus got Linton out first, around 5.45 p.m. She could only watch as SWAT gave Linton cover and pulled her away. It was like she was in the middle of a war zone. Duskus was left in a surreal predicament. If she stayed away from the windows, which filled with searchlights as the sun fell, things seemed perfectly normal. John informed her that Valentin Jordanov, his current favorite wrestler, would be coming soon for his usual visit. He told her to go ahead and invite the others to join. According to Dave's brother, Mark, John even told her to invite Schultz up. Then he chuckled. It wasn't until 6.45 p.m. that Duskus found her moment to slip out. She told her boss she would take his empty coffee cup to the kitchen and she never came back. John DuPont was now completely alone and completely surrounded. It really was him against the world. Eventually, the standoff came to include a full 75 officers from 10 local departments, plus 30 more SWAT team members. The news spread quickly as employees and residents on the property were evacuated by police. The shock of the news that John had shot Dave was a lot to process. The team had been like a family. John was clearly acting weirder every day, but none of them had believed he was truly dangerous. Many thought the shooting must have been an accident. It didn't take long for word of the police activity to reach the local media, who also started crowding the grounds. John was known publicly for his generosity and philanthropy. Nobody quite believed he could be a murderer. The mystery only deepened when the police team of negotiators finally got John himself on the phone. John told them, quote, His Holiness is under siege here. He was totally deluded, able to understand what was happening, but not why. He told law enforcement he was annoyed by the lights and ordered them all to leave his holy property. His fantasies twisted with each passing minute. At other points during negotiations, John told police he was the President of the United States and the Soviet Union. 
It seems he believed they were the Soviet army, sent to capture and kill him. The entire standoff was the realization of months of planning, waiting, and watching. He refused to make their jobs easier by simply walking out the door. His mood worsened as the hours went by. John wasn't used to being alone in the mansion. Usually, one or more wrestlers were around, coming and going from their rooms. Those friendliest with John tried to keep him company around the clock. Someone was always close by to keep an eye out. When Vallow didn't show up for his regular visit, John was upset. He hated being isolated. The empty halls reminded him too much of his painful childhood. He repeatedly called Vallow's house on the farm and left message after message for him to come over. He couldn't believe Vallow had abandoned him like the others, but no matter what, he refused to be intimidated. The sun set on Friday, with John and the police still locked in a stalemate. The more law enforcement tried to reason with him, the less he listened. Everyone feared it was only a matter of time before more violence broke out. Coming up, the SWAT team makes their move on John DuPont. Hi there, it's Carter from ParCast. If you haven't had a chance to check out the riveting true crime series Solved Murders, there's no better time to tune in. Throughout the month of August, Solved Murders is featuring four celebrations that took a turn for the deadly in a special series we're calling Party Fowls. From a murder in the New York nightclub scene and a house party gone horribly wrong, to a terrifying evening at the Tate residence and a sex party with sinister results. Go deeper inside for affairs remembered for all the wrong reasons. And if you like what you hear with party fouls and want to uncover more of history's most captivating cases, be sure to follow Solved Murders on Spotify. There you'll find a new episode released every Wednesday. Solved Murders is a Spotify original from ParCast. Listen free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now, back to the story. On January 26, 1996, 57-year-old millionaire John DuPont shot and killed wrestler Dave Schultz. 
Afterward, he retreated to his massive mansion where he engaged in a standoff with police. After hours of attempted negotiation, John grew tired of talking. He stopped answering his phone. That evening, police turned off the heat to his home. Through the rainy winter conditions, officers continued their watch, lights and weapons trained on the mansion. The next day, negotiators managed to keep him on the phone for longer periods of time, though he still refused to come outside. He asked to see his friend Vallo and his lawyer, Taras Wachok. He said he needed Wachok to call the Bulgarian embassy. They would be able to sort things out with the police. There wasn't much else John was willing to talk about. He didn't acknowledge there had been a shooting, let alone that he might have been involved in it. At 9 o'clock p.m. Saturday evening, John casually informed police he was going to bed. They stopped calling to allow him to rest. When the press asked the authorities why John was being allowed to dictate such a thing, one responded, I wish I had a better answer than I don't know. The media started speculating that the police in Newtown Square had become too close to John DuPont. He had, after all, trained with a number of them at his private shooting ranges. It seemed that they had been blind to a growing threat that was now raging beyond their control. On Sunday, the second full day of the standoff, John got in touch with his lawyer. He claimed he was Jesus and that if he died, the world would end. He also asked for someone to bring him more pipe tobacco and told his attorney he wouldn't be answering any calls until 10 a.m. And he didn't. When he did finally get in touch with the police that morning, John complained about the cold. The heat had been off for days by that point and temperatures had dropped below 30 degrees overnight. Negotiators told him they couldn't send any maintenance people onto the property. John declared he could take care of things on his own. But that would require him to walk a short distance from the back of the mansion to a greenhouse in the garden. Negotiators told John he'd be allowed to go as long as he didn't come out armed. He promised he wouldn't. John tentatively opened the garden door and looked around. The coast seemed clear. He stepped outside into the biting air for the first time in days. He wore a thin black tracksuit with Bulgarian flag colors slashed across the sleeves and a blue team Foxcatcher t-shirt underneath. A noise from the bushes alerted his hunter's senses. Just then, an officer in full tactical gear shouted for him to freeze. Instead, John turned to flee back into the house, but the officer cut off his path. He was caught. The nearly 50-hour standoff was finally over. Nancy Schultz, Dave's widow, was still reeling when she heard the news. She'd been taken straight from the hospital to the police station to give a statement after her husband was pronounced dead. She was exhausted from forcing herself to relive her horrific final moments with the love of her life. After that, she had to go home and tell their young kids what happened. But for the life of her, she was still trying to answer that question. 
What had just happened? Dave had been so good to John. They both had. He was practically a part of their family. There may not have been a single reason, but there were warning signs. She and the rest of the wrestlers at Foxcatcher Farms were together in their grief and their guilt. There were so many people who knew John needed help and many more who at least suspected things weren't all right. Yet they had all, including Dave, ignored the red flags. The what-ifs plagued her until John's preliminary trial on February 10th, two weeks after the murder. He sat blank-faced at the defense table, flanked on either side by high-powered lawyers. The judge started by reading the charges and asking John if he understood. John whispered something to one attorney, who stood and relayed the message that John didn't understand. The defense was clearly gearing up for an insanity plea. Nancy was the only witness called by the prosecution that day. Even so, the judge ruled that there was enough evidence for a trial. At the defense's request, a competency hearing was scheduled for September. Meanwhile, John was to undergo neurological tests and psychological evaluation. The next day, February 11, 1996, a memorial service was held at the University of Pennsylvania's Palestra Arena. Hundreds of mourners filled the stands as speaker after speaker told stories about Dave and recounted fond memories. Dave had the unique ability to make every person he connected with feel like they were his best friend. Many hearts were shattered by his loss. Unfortunately, his family, friends, and fans would have to wait months for the next step in the slog toward justice. From March until September, John was evaluated by several doctors. These jobs were difficult as John remained highly suspicious and often refused to cooperate. Persecutory delusions like the ones that plague John often extend to medical professionals themselves, which makes treatment that much harder. Mental health experts are trained to take their time establishing trust with their patients, but during a swiftly moving court case, that's not always possible. The interviews did demonstrate the extent of John's paranoid and delusional thinking. Four doctors agreed that John wasn't mentally competent. Dr. John O'Brien, a fifth psychiatrist and also a lawyer, was then hired by the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania to evaluate John. By the time of the hearing, O'Brien was the only holdout maintaining John DuPont's competency to stand trial. John's condition was tough for his legal counsel to deal with as well. Just before the hearing, John fired two of his lawyers. He had become convinced they were conspiring with the DA. Another attorney, Thomas Bergstrom, was called in to replace them. Bergstrom met John at the Delaware County Prison. In order to help, Bergstrom first had to get John to say he wanted him as his new lawyer. But John was preoccupied with the issue of his bail. He insisted he just needed someone to contact the military. As a prisoner of war, they would surely sort out any issues. Before leaving the prison, Bergstrom was somewhat satisfied that he'd been hired. He accompanied John to his next hearing, 
where the judge reviewed the testimony and ultimately found John incompetent. He was committed to Norristown State Hospital. There, he was treated with antipsychotic medication for paranoia with grandiose delusions and distorted thinking. After a second hearing in December, John was finally declared ready to stand trial. He was to remain in treatment at the state hospital until the proceedings started on January 27, 1997. Meanwhile, his personal attorney reached out to the remnants of Team Foxcatcher, who were trying to keep John's dream alive. The majority of the athletes who had only joined Foxcatcher to train with Dave Schultz deserted. There had been a bonfire of Foxcatcher singlets after John's arrest. But in the inner circle, loyalties were painfully divided. For members like Rob Calabrese, who had lived on the farm longer than anyone, the situation was like being forced to choose between family members. Dave was a brother to him, and Rob had nothing but love and sympathy for Nancy and the kids. But he'd built a life at Foxcatcher Farm, and it wasn't so easy to just pick up and leave. Five months after Dave's murder, the 1996 Olympic trials became a battleground between the wrestlers. Coach Dan Gable told reporters that he had advised his guys not to wear their Foxcatcher gear, yet a few still did. Dan Chade, who'd been personally assaulted by John, reportedly yelled for a wrestler in Foxcatcher gear to be thrown out during a match. Bulgarian transplant Valentin Jordanov found himself in a particularly tight spot he had been Dave's closest friend at Foxcatcher. Their families were deeply intertwined. At the memorial service, Vallow said that the six years living and training with Dave had been the best of his life. It was obvious to most people that one of the things that had turned John against Dave was his closeness with Vallow. John had been jealous and permanently the odd man out because he was the only one of the three who couldn't speak Russian. On the one hand was Vallow's love for Dave, but he had his own family to take care of too. Bulgaria was dealing with political unrest at the time. Staying in America depended on his visa, which rested on the fate of his career. Since John funded Foxcatcher, that career was entirely in his hands. The question of the team's future was put to a jury in January of 1997. Because of the publicity surrounding the case, the court allowed attorneys to interview every potential juror to assess possible bias for or against John DuPont. From the beginning, the defense's strategy was pretty clear. Their only hope of an acquittal was to plead not guilty by reason of insanity. Over the months of pretrial hearings and evaluations, John's appearance told the story of his decline. When he'd first been arrested, he was clean-cut and presentable. By the time he stood trial a year later, he was unrecognizable. His sunken face was half-hidden behind a scraggly gray beard. His hair had grown out unevenly, hanging almost to his shoulders. Boxy clothes hung from his thin frame. More often than not, John was wheeled into the courtroom and spent the proceedings slack-jawed and silent behind the defense table. His appearance and behavior 
broadcasted his current mental state to the courtroom and media. But the issue before the jury was whether or not he had been insane by the standards of Pennsylvania law at the time of the murder. The defense knew it would be an uphill battle. If found not guilty by reason of insanity, John would be held in a psychiatric hospital rather than prison, and only until he was declared no longer dangerous. In general, juries erred on the side of caution, not wanting to take the risks that a killer would accidentally go free in the future. John's attorneys had to prove that when he pulled the trigger, he either didn't understand that he was killing Dave or didn't know that killing him would be wrong. They would be held to a higher standard than the usual beyond a reasonable doubt. Even with all of this working in their favor, prosecutors worried the jurors would be swayed by the sheer stature of John DuPont. He was possibly the wealthiest man to ever stand trial for murder. His resources and connections had sheltered him for decades unscathed. Delaware County DA Patrick Meehan feared John would put his full resources to work in the trial. He and his team were up against a force potentially more powerful than justice. The world was about to find out if there was a price tag on getting away with murder. Coming up, John's trial becomes a psychological tug of war. Now, back to the story. A year after murdering Dave Schultz, 58-year-old John DuPont stood trial in January 1997. The question presented to the jury wasn't whether John had committed the crime, but rather if he'd had the mental capacity to understand what he did. The defense attorney called four doctors to the stand during the proceedings, including William T. Carpenter, the country's leading authority on schizophrenia. All of them agreed that the most fitting diagnosis for John was paranoid schizophrenia. Delusional thinking is one of the possible symptoms for diagnosing schizophrenia, a mental disorder that affects the way a person interprets and interacts with reality. In order for a person to be diagnosed with a condition, the symptoms cannot be better explained by something else like substance abuse. It was widely known that John had a serious cocaine habit and was also a heavy drinker. Cocaine can cause symptoms that closely mirror those of schizophrenia, including delusions and hallucinations. However, in the months since the murder, while being held in prison and then the state hospital, John's symptoms persisted while his drug use had not. Schizophrenia is often difficult to recognize and diagnose because it runs in phases. The first is called prodromal, which is regularly overlooked or dismissed because the symptoms closely resemble depression. Next is the active stage, when delusions are the most prominent. According to Dr. Todd Grande, a licensed professional counselor of mental health, a person can cycle through these phases quickly or slowly in varying intervals. Most people with the disorder spend a majority of the time in the prodromal phase. During these times, less severe versions of symptoms like delusions or hallucinations may still be present. John was widely known for being an eccentric person. He often said and did strange, unexplainable things. 
These were likely during his prodromal phases. When his behavior got bad and he moved into an active phase, the people around him knew to keep their distance until it passed. It was a predictably unreliable pattern, the ebb and flow of life on Team Foxcatcher. There was no shortage of evidence that showed in retrospect John's delusional beliefs and paranoid fixations. In November 1995, he had filed a report with the Newtown Township Police saying there was an international conspiracy to kill him, the Holy Child. Apparently, no officials had seriously followed up on the report. Over the course of the investigation, it was revealed that John had been married briefly in 1983. The affair had lasted only a few months. His wife left him, alleging physical abuse. The final straw had been when John reportedly held a gun to her head, screaming that he was going to kill her for being a Russian spy. Even the prosecution's mental health expert agreed with the schizophrenia diagnosis, however. It wasn't enough for the defense to establish its existence. They also had to prove that the disorder kept John from truly understanding his actions. Some of the evidence proved difficult for the defense to explain. John was known for carrying a 38, but the day of the murder, he had chosen to bring a 357 Magnum revolver loaded with hollow point bullets. The casings for the three bullets fired into Dave Schultz were never recovered. So he must have disposed of them somehow. This possibly showed he understood what he had done and tried to get rid of the evidence. The biggest hurdle for them to overcome though, was a days-long standoff. Someone who didn't know he'd done anything wrong wouldn't have barricaded himself in his house. John even told his staff not to let the police in the home. Meanwhile, the prosecution had their own obstacles to contend with. Bergstrom pointed out that John had brought his head of security, Patrick Goodale, with him to the murder. A person who understood the morality or legality of their actions wouldn't generally bring along witnesses. The one thing all the evidence clearly pointed to was that John was not acting in his right mind. There was no logic being followed, except for the twisted one produced by his disorder. But he had still murdered a man, a husband and father, who'd done nothing but try to be John's friend. The prosecution's case rested heavily on the image of John DuPont as an entitled and arrogant rich man who felt personally threatened by Dave. The assistant DA said in his closing argument that Dave's intention to leave Foxcatcher led John to believe he was planning to discredit him. According to him, John killed Dave because he saw his narcissistic life dissolving. The jury didn't believe the defense did enough to demonstrate that John didn't know he'd done something wrong. The standoff was proof of his general awareness. They decided he was guilty, but argued over the degree to which his actions were intentional. On the other hand, the prosecution hadn't been able to establish a believable motive. Even Nancy said there was no reason for John to kill Dave. For some jurors, that ruled out first-degree murder. But whether he had intended to or not, 
they agreed that John had knowingly killed Dave Schultz. Deliberations lasted an agonizing seven days. Several times, the spokesperson came before the court to ask the judge questions or request clarifications. On each occasion, the jury continued their closed-door negotiations. With every passing day, the fear of a hung jury grew. On Tuesday, February 25th, 1997, the jury was finally ready to give their verdict. Both sides sat behind their tables, anxious to hear the outcome of the extended deliberations. The tension weighed on everyone in the courtroom, except John, who assumed an impassive, almost unresponsive state. The jury declared John DuPont guilty of murder in the third degree, but mentally ill. Passed in 1982, the guilty but mentally ill statute was designed for gray areas such as this, where not guilty felt too lenient, but guilty was potentially too harsh. John could be sentenced to up to 40 years, but would still be given access to treatment. The judge ordered a pre-sentencing psychiatric evaluation to determine whether he would start his sentence in prison or a hospital. Relief swept through Nancy as she laid her head on her father's shoulder. John had gotten away with so much in his life. Over the course of the trial, she had been terrified that Dave's murder would become one more thing John wasn't held accountable for. She told reporters, it is comforting to know that DuPont is not above the law. The defense didn't get everything it wanted, but they were also pleased with the verdict. One attorney told reporters, it could have been a lot worse. This was a case with little winners. It's tragic for the Schultz family. It's tragic for DuPont. It was a case with no winners, a story filled with questions of what ifs and if onlys. What if law enforcement hadn't shrugged off John's disturbing behavior? If only he'd accepted help, all of it could have been prevented. Dave Schultz's death was an utterly avoidable tragedy. At the sentencing hearing on May 13, 1997, John's hair and beard were trimmed. He appeared less unkempt than he had throughout the trial, though his behavior was no different. He sat silent and disconnected as members of the Schultz family gave their statements. Just before he was sentenced, John stood before the judge and said he was ill at the time of the murder. He didn't apologize to Dave's parents or brother, but he did say he was sorry for the inconvenience he'd caused Nancy and the kids. Ultimately, John was sentenced to 13 to 30 years, the first three months were spent in a state hospital before he was transferred to prison for the remaining time. He appealed the verdict many times, including a Supreme Court case in 2000, all of which he lost. In December 2010, John DuPont died in prison at the age of 72. Valentin Jordanov was named as primary heir in John's will and inherited 80% of the estate. The document also specified that John was to be buried in a red Foxcatcher singlet. In the 2016 documentary Team Foxcatcher, 
Dave's daughter Danielle told the story of finding out about John's death through newspaper headlines. She said, quote, When my dad died, everyone mourned, and this guy never had anybody to love him. And then he died, and everyone's happy? It's just sad. In 1997, Dave Schultz was posthumously inducted into the National Wrestling Hall of Fame. Numerous awards and scholarships were named after him. USA Wrestling even started the Dave Schultz Memorial International Tournament in 1999, which is still running today. We can only hope that the memory of his talent, strength, and compassion will continue to inspire athletes all over the world. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We will be back Wednesday with another episode. For more information on John DuPont, amongst the many sources we used, we found Foxcatcher, The True Story of My Brother's Murder, John DuPont's Madness and the Quest for Olympic Gold by Mark Schultz, and the documentary Team Foxcatcher, extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion, as well as all other Spotify originals from Parcast, on Spotify or your favorite podcast directory. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Megan Hannum, with writing assistance by Terrell Wells, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Lainey Hobbs. Hi, listeners. It's Carter. Here's a quick reminder to check out the Solved Murders four-part special Party Fowls. Every Wednesday in August, take a closer look at four celebrations that ended in horrific fashion. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Solved Murders. Listen free only on Spotify. Spotify.